0: which would you say is the greater danger to the Christian? Threats that we can see outside of us that oppose us or threats that corrupt us from within? You can ask this question another way. Which is the greater danger to the church? External persecution or our own internal idolatry? Well, in our history, churches have actually grown stronger and their faith has become more robust under persecution or martyrdom. But when our hearts hanker after other loves, thriving churches can become divided and weakened from within. Our hearts are God-making factories and we can make idols of virtually anything. Success in life, our traditions, even the personal need to be right, can reflect an idol. The Church Father Tertullian wrote, The principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. Well, after thinking about doing spiritual good this week, we return to our studies in Exodus. Exodus. And over these few months, we've been seeing how God overcomes the main obstacle to, his, uh, to fulfilling His covenant promises, a mighty Pharaoh, and the oppression of Egypt. God has redeemed His people for worship, but now we turn to the problem of their worship itself. And this second problem occupies the remaining chapters of this book, uh, and that's idolatry. So for our note-takers, I had, a, I had slides, but they failed me. Uh, so here they are. Here's the big idea for today uh, Idolatry corrupts, but God's man mediates. That's it. And we'll be looking at that with six observations uh, three about idolatry, and three about God's man. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to grab them and turn to Exodus 32. Uh, as I read the first 10 verses for us. You can, uh, I don't know what page number that's on. If someone could yell it out. 67, it's on page 67. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation of you. So let's begin with our first point, idolatry corrupts worship, verses 1 to 6. Now the chapters before this one have shown us God's precise commands for worship. He downloaded them to Moses on the mountain and and Moses downloaded them to the people. And the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, will be how a holy God will dwell with his people. Specific craftsmen were chosen to build this thing, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab. So every expectation is that Moses is going to descend from the mountain and work on the plans will begin and that God will come and live with his people. But in chapter 32, the scene and the setting change rapidly. It toggles to where the Israelites are and what they are doing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Verse 1, Moses delayed to come down, so the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they say with the terrible ask, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Instead of waiting on the Lord, Instead of waiting on Moses, Israel organized itself around bad counsel. They gathered themselves together. Perhaps this was the leadership of the able judges, who are maybe not so able, from chapter 18. Maybe the 70 elders who ate and drank with God in chapter 24. Maybe it was a a mob that rose up and overpowered these godly men. We don't know how it happened. But these outward acts, Acts 7 tells us reflects the inward turn of the heart. Regina read just now from Acts 7, where the deacon Stephen, speaking of this event, said that Israel had refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside and in their hearts turned to Egypt. So don't think that because Moses was absent and Israel was vulnerable to doubt, or that Moses and God took too long on the mountain, and things would have been different if they were faster. Don't think that. That would miss the point entirely. We are lured and enticed by sinful desire from our own hearts. No man can say that God has tempted me, James 1 says. So this passage suggests that the temptation arose out of the impatience of the heart, a desire to go back to Egypt, Instead of trusting the God who saves, uh, look at how they speak in verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron is the one that declares this this, uh, fact. And then he builds this altar and calls them to worship the calf for their salvation. He's the one that melts down the rings of gold the gold which God had purposed for the furnishings of the tabernacle, all of that goes into this calf. God had given them, God will later give them instructions, more instructions for burnt offerings and peace offerings, but you see them here offering it to the calf. They even use the covenant name of God, the Lord, that holy name revealed to Moses. That's the name that they give to this calf. All this to say that the offensiveness of idolatry is what it does to God. The corruption of our hearts lead us to turn from worshipping Him. Verse 6, the people sat down to eat and drink. They rose up to play. There was joy in their idolatry instead of God. They had forgotten The commandments, the holy words given in Exodus 20, inscribed in stone by God's own hand, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. All those commandments were ignored. They were given for Israel to be different from the rest of the world, different from its neighbors. Uh, Israel was supposed to be this shining beacon of anti-idolatry. A holy nation of God's priests in the world. Look at them now. And why a golden calf? Of all things, why a golden cow? Psalm 106, verse 20 says, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox which eats grass Verse 21, they forgot the God who saved them. You know, Aaron, after all, was born in Egypt. And he probably reached for imagery that he knew. That's what he exchanged. The Egyptian god, Hathor, often depicted as a cow or with horns, was one of the primary matriarchal deities. And her son, the bull deity, Apis, was associated with authority and fertility and strength. God's people were out of Egypt, but Egypt still dwelt in them. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon suggested that, quote, they wanted something to look at, something visible that they could adore. It was not that they meant to cease to worship Jehovah, but they intended to worship Him under some tangible symbol, unquote. Traditionally, Christianity has always rejected the making of images of God, especially after the Protestant Reformation. Apart from a plain cross, most church halls or sanctuaries do not have much symbolism uh, or icons in worship because we understand the dangers of idolatry. But beyond physical worship objects, This passage asks if we have turned in our hearts to a counterfeit God. We may not have a statue of a deity, but friends, what is in our hearts? The late Tim Keller wrote of the counterfeit gods that Christians make, and idols need not take a physical form nor reside in a temple. Keller writes, When anything in life is an absolute requirement for happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something that you are actually worshipping. And when such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute, unquote. Friends, do you want to know what an idol could be in your life? Try and take it out of your life. And if you find you can't live without it, possibly, It could be an idol when god is god to us all of our satisfaction and joy will be found in him alone idolatry corrupts worship and everything else point two idolatry corrupts our relationship with god verses 7 to 10. look down in verse 10 you'll see that god was keenly aware of what was happening on the ground the omniscient, omnipresent God is not limited to the mountaintop. He tells Moses to go down because he knows what's going on. But notice what, how he says it in verse 7. Look at his use of second-person pronouns. To Moses, he says, They are your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. Look at that distance that has now been created. Verse 9. I have seen this people, and it is a stiff-necked people. This is a picture of how Israel refuses to be led by God. That's what being stiff-necked means. We don't turn the way God wants us to go. God wants a people who are compliant to His Word, true to His heart. As Psalm 32 verses 8 to 9 says, the Lord says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. There are terrifying consequences to be stiff-necked. Throughout Exodus, God uses a central metaphor to reveal His holiness and power, and God uses it again here. He says, Uh, in, In Exodus, we've seen God as a flame that does not burn up the bush. We've seen God in the pillar of cloud and fire. We've seen Him on the shadow and flame of the mountain of Sinai. And in verse 10, God now says, let me alone that my wrath will burn against you and consume you. This is what idolatry does to the relationship of God's people with a holy God. God, our consuming fire, is about to incinerate a sinful and idolatrous people. And he offers to start again with Moses like a new Noah or a new Abraham. Friends, in the same way, if we are unresponsive to the preaching of the gospel week in and week out, we too are stiff-necked. Stephen calls up this language in Acts 7, verses 51 to 52. You stiff-necked people, he says, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. What hope is there for the stiff-necked it's to respond in our hearts to the, to the good news of this righteous one. Friends, if you're, a, if you're a visitor to our church, we're so glad you've come today. You've picked a great day to come. Uh, we hope that you understand that the Christian friend that, you, that brought you to church here today doesn't think and should not think of himself or himself as more righteous than you. Christians are people who understand ourselves to be idolatrous people. We went astray from God, living our own way, hating the idea that there is a holy creator that we need to account to. But the same God had mercy on us and sent us this Savior, this righteous one who gives his life for the unrighteous to pay our guilt debt. And God raised him from the dead to prove objectively that sins can be forgiven in his name. If we repent of our sins and trust in Him, He has promised to save us to the uttermost. Friends, I hope that you will give time today to hear about this Jesus and His death on the cross and whether it's really true that He rose from the dead. If you'd like to find out more, I'd love to speak to you. Uh, Any of the elders would love to do that. And I'm sure the friend who brought you would love to speak to you too. Idols spoil that relationship with God, only the good news of Jesus can restore it. So, point three, idolatry corrupts our spiritual sight, verses 21 to 24 and 35. We should not think that idolatry will leave us unchanged. Our idols change us and will surely hurt us. Look at verses 21 to 24 and see how compromised Aaron has become. Like Adam, confronted by God in the garden, Aaron is blind to his own sin. He can't even see his fault. Moses asks his brother, verse 21, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Sweet Moses, he can't even imagine his own brother, the one who is to bear up Israel on his heart as the high priest, that's the guy. He's the one that's supposed to go into the holy of holies. He's the one that made the calf. He can't believe it. And Aaron's response is disingenuous at best. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil for they said to me make us gods who shall go before us as for this moses the man who brought us up of the land of egypt we do not know what has become of him so i said to them let the, any who have gold take it off so they give it to me i threw it in the fire and out came this calf it's impossible to hear aaron's words and not find them absurd and quite funny you know the people of moses they were so reasonable they had a good point By the way, it made itself. And you compare what he says with what is reported to Moses by God. And Aaron has scrubbed out all his initiative, all his responsibility, his hard work in making a calf from gold, and the blasphemous declaration that this is the Lord that brought you up out of Egypt. Idolatry makes us all fools. Everyone, everyone around us can see our flaws except us. Aaron's example, even his words of self-justification confirm what the psalmist says in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Friends, the idols we worship will never defend us, they'll never satisfy us. They can't even comfort us. And when we make gods for ourselves, those gods remake us in their image. That's what happens with Aaron and Israel that follows him. They make this Egyptian-style calf elder, a uh, calf idol, and they make themselves like Egypt, and God will treat them like Egypt. Verse 34 and 35, He will visit them in judgment as He did to Egypt, And God will send a plague because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. How has your idolatry caused harm in your life? Those of us that are single can easily make an idol out of romance. Those of us who are married can easily make an idol of our children. Those of us with no children can do that too. Working people can make an idol of success or the praise of our employer as much as seniors can make retirement or financial freedom an idol. GBC, are we an idolatrous people? I hope that uh, at lunch, you consider talking about this. Talk to your close friends. Talk to your family. Talk to those who know you. Is there an idol in my heart that takes the place of Christ? Is there something I'm loving more than Jesus? Something that takes His place? So, idolatry corrupts our worship, our relationship with God, and spiritual sight. May God have mercy on us for the sin of idolatry. But what will God's man, Moses, what will he do in response? Let's pick up in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord God and said, O Lord, why? Why? does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, And Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, that they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, On the front and the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. For the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people about, to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Three points about God's man. Point four. God's man mediates between God and man. Verses 11 to 20. Moses has been informed by what Israel has done and he comes crashing down and I want us to see that what Moses then does is he takes the perspective and represents the interests of God and man. Verse 11, Moses begs that God hold back wrath from burning hot against Israel and he bolsters this with three reasons. First, this is your people God. Don't pull a fast one on me, they're your people. Second, Egypt should not be allowed to confuse God's rescue for wrath. Third, that God's own covenant promises be fulfilled. Put simply, Moses prays that God remembers his people, makes his favor clear, and fulfills his covenant. Friends, these are no regrets prayers that we can always pray. In Deuteronomy 9, Moses gives more detail of what he actually did. Verses 18 to 19, I'll read them, I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that He was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. Friends, this is why our church continually needs intercession. We are sinners just like this idolatrous people. And we need intercessors like Moses, don't we? We need people who will Pray for this gathering, this group of Christians whose hearts are so prone to wander. We need people to pray and pray mercy in Jesus' name that God would be gracious to us and patient with us. Oh, let, it, let the words of Ezekiel 22 never be said of us that God sought for a man who would stand in the breach but none could be found so god has one uh, so moses represents the people before god as their intercessor but notice also that moses does not side with them against god in fact he clearly takes god's side against the people he descends and sees the idolatry for himself verse 19 his anger burned hot these are the same words that describe god's anger in verse 10 And so he smashes the sign of the covenant. The treaty tablets are dashed to the ground. And then he is violent. He burns the calf and he grinds it down and he forces them to drink it. How should we think about representing a holy God to one another? How do we do that? Some may think that Moses' example gives us a right to be angry and to be Harsh with God's people. It it maybe sets a precedent for us to be like Jesus, you know, clean the temple, right? None of us is the sinless son of God. And none of us is meek like the man Moses. Anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. In your anger, do not sin. So be careful how we speak to one another. I do not think Moses' anger here is sinful. Later on in the text, uh, later on in the Bible, when we see Moses strike the rock in anger, God will condemn him, but not here. It will be for his anger in striking the rock that he will be excluded from the promised land, but not here. These public actions seem to be instructive they seem to be making a point for Israel to learn. In the smashing of the tablets, we see clearly that the covenant relationship between God and man needs to be reset. We can't go on like this. We need to do something. In grinding down the calf of gold, he shows that this object has no power at all. It's just dust. Augustine suggested that the act of making the people drink it showed that the people had to swallow their ungodliness and taste the bitterness of idolatry. I love Augustine. Creative. This passage should challenge us if we feel laissez-faire and passive when it comes to matters of God's church. We can learn from Moses who cares deeply and is deeply offended by idolatry and God's people. Friends, it is to the church family that the Apostle John writes in 1 John 5, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so it ought to be with us that we concern ourselves with the leaven that leavens the entire lump. I think we need to remember this profound balance God's representative who addresses idolatry, but also is the same man who intercedes and seeks for mercy. Before we speak out against idolatry, we must speak intercession in prayer. Well, point five, God's mediator also cleanses. <coughs> Verses 25 to 29. With such an outbreak... What kind of cleansing is going to be enough? Is there anyone in the camp that can move on and still be true with the Lord? Verse 25 says the people had broken loose in their sin. So Moses takes his place in a central area. He asks, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the fact that the whole nation did not come running is proof of the rot. Only the tribe of Levi, only those who are to be priests, will come. Well, they arm themselves and they move through the camp in judicial action. 3,000 lives are lost that day as idolatry is cut off. Friends, this is the cost that needs to be paid. Verse 29 says, this is a tragic ordination for these priests and they know the high price that idolatry costs God's people. This passage asks us hard questions, doesn't it? What price are we willing to pay for our holiness, even to lose a part of ourselves, our flesh and blood, if it means holiness for God's sake? And the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 call us similarly to take purity that seriously. Eye or arm, if it causes us to sin, we need it out of our lives. Spurgeon puts it this way, they were thorough with God and so must we be. When we join Christ's church, there must be a cutting off of right arms and a plucking out of right eyes if necessary. There must be a mortifying of the flesh with its affections and lusts. We are called to a battle and we must prepare for it and not be afraid. But finally, point six, God's man makes atonement Verses 30 to 34. And with all that's been said and done, you would think that this blood that's been shed, cleansing, has already been made. But Moses seems to think that all is not well. Verse 30. The next day he says he will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for their great sin. So the blood shed, the atonement made, uh, rather, there's no, there's no atonement that's been made. So what exactly does Moses have in mind? His proposal in verse 32 is surprising. He says this to the Lord, but now if you will forgive, your, forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. See the heart of God's man. His love for this difficult flock. Especially when you remember that God had offered to start all over again and make a new nation out of Him. See the substitutionary offer that Moses makes. This is the theme that will continue to develop in Scripture, the innocent in the place of the guilty. But Moses says, I will stand with God's people, and where they go, I go. If they are condemned, blot me out. And they remind us of what Paul says uh, in Romans 9, when he yearns that his fellow Israelites will be saved, even if it means he, the apostle, is cut off from Christ. Now, of course, this is not how the gospel works. But in one sense, this is what it looks like exactly to have a heart of mercy like God's, longing that none might perish, but that all might come to repentance. The fascinating thing is that God actually says to Moses, no, Or he doesn't say it out loud, but he just leaves it. He doesn't take it up. And verse 33, he says, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out. So he rejects Moses' offer. Moses, your offer of atonement is is not sufficient. But now you go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you, and my angel shall go before you. So the text doesn't quite resolve the question, you know. The chapter doesn't quite address All the issues that have been raised, there's some assurance you can go, carry on, my angel will go with you, I haven't abandoned you. But sin has not fully been atoned for, all is not well. Who will atone for God's people? Who will deal with their idolatry once and for all so that their hearts are changed? And in the context of our story, how are God's people going to move on from here? You know, in 1 Kings 12, a few, cha- a few books later, we actually see that the cult of the golden calf persists in Israel. And King Jeroboam introduces uh, this false worship to Israel yet again. So we know that the story is not done. We know that idolatry has not been fully dealt with. So What? Will change us from within? What will give us new hearts? There will have to be another, one who is a better Moses, a mediator between God and man. He will live a sinless life and make a better atonement as a better substitute. He will make better intercession before God. And friends, do you realize that right now, this is what He does for us? Right now, we have a man in heaven. Do you know why the golden calf and every form of idolatry is so offensive to God? Because the God who said, make no idols, make no images of me, that God had a plan And his plan was to send us a perfect image, a perfect representation of himself. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The one place we need to go if we want to see God, the one face we need to look into to behold God's glory is his. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And on the cross, He makes that perfect atonement for sinners in His flesh, which was broken, His blood that was shed, and He did it for you and for me. Though we were idolaters, because He looked at us, and in mercy, He loved us. Friends, this is the only way we can overcome our idolatry. By knowing and delighting in Christ's work on the cross, only that can cause our hearts to be moved, to be melted, to dislodge all the idols that dwell within us. Only the love of Christ, for Christ, can fill and push out all these lesser loves. That's why it's so important that we understand that Jesus is the ultimate anti-idol, and that we get rid of every idol, and that this place, as we gather each week, we point one another to Christ. In all that we do and say, we speak and bear witness to Him. And in doing so, we help one another release our grip on all these images that fail and hurt and corrupt us. Hear these words from the hymn writer, William Cooper, as we close. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God, calm and serene my frame, so purer light shall mark the road that leads me to the Lamb.